from Creation Ministries International, you're listening to Creation.com's article podcast, the research and insights that give God glory, refute evolution, and give you the answers to defend your faith. Many Christians are asking Creation Ministries International to comment on global warming, or climate change, said to be caused by human-generated carbon dioxide. This happens particularly at ministry events where we have a Q&A. It is certainly a hot topic, and many are confused because of the conflicting messages. Until now, we have largely avoided the issue. For one thing, we don't think of it as a core creation gospel issue. Also, some people get quite emotional about the subject, so it could be a risky thing to comment upon. No matter what view we take, some of our friends are going to disagree, and we understand. We always attempt to align our positions to a coherent Christian worldview based on God's Word, but we don't want to alienate people over tangential issues. Also, scientifically, the issue is very complex, as I have found diving into the literature and many colleagues inside and outside CMI have critiqued and contributed to what follows. Hence, this document is a joint effort. It has come to over 14,000 words, and there are some mind-stretching concepts for those who are not scientifically trained. I've done my best to explain things, and there is a summary at the end. The matter has certainly become a significant worldview issue, so we have decided that we should give some guidance. After all, we have considerable experience in Christian worldview matters, as well as collective expertise in the sciences that relate to climate and climate history. Our biblical worldview compels us to revere the God of creation. Some of the relevant principles are that, the universe and earth were created through and for Jesus Christ, see John 1 and Colossians 1. The earth was created for mankind, check Genesis 1, 2 and Isaiah 45. We are called to be holy and blameless in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 and Genesis 1 and 2. Christ holds his creation together, that's mentioned in Colossians 1. Mankind is called to steward God's creation, mentioned in Genesis 1, 2 and 9. And the last principle I'll note here at the start is that we're to worship the Creator, not the creation, Gaia, or Mother Earth. See Romans 1. As Christians, we affirm that we have a responsibility to look after the environment, stewardship of God's creation. That is a given. We are also compelled to consider the poor and the general welfare of our neighbors. In the early days of global warming, Many of CMI's scientists were inclined to agree that CO2 from human activity could be causing significant warming of Earth, hence anthropogenic global warming. Therefore, taking steps to moderate our contribution would be a good thing to do. However, we have become increasingly concerned with climate alarmism, which appears to be driven more by an anti-Christian worldview than scientific evidence. Here we share what has shaped our thinking from the Bible and from science. Let's look at the real history of the world from the Bible. We affirm the biblical time frame and the reality of the flood. These provide a framework for thinking about the history of the climate as it relates to the current debate. According to Genesis 1:27 through 29, people were commanded to fill the earth. Thus, God created earth to be productive, to feed the people, and to be full of people. Of course, the fall occurred when Adam sinned, causing the corruption of the creation and it would then have at times been difficult to get enough food to survive. Regrettably, quite a few environmentalists are misanthropic, hating mankind, and have no interest in the needs of humanity, rather hoping for our demise. Of course, they rarely lead by example. 
This misanthropy comes through in several of the documentaries of the English Nature TV presenter David Attenborough, calling us a plague on the earth, for example. In the biblical view, from the beginning, humans were created to care for and rule over the earth and everything in it. This is called the dominion mandate. In the modern secular view, based as it is on the narrative of deep time evolution, humans are latecomers. Some then take the view that the environment worked perfectly well for hundreds of millions of years before humans arrived. Thus, they reason that if we get humans out of the equation, the environment will function much better. In effect, that is what has been done in many parts of the world. In Australia, it was a major factor in the severity of the 2019 bushfires due to the lack of fuel reduction and maintenance of fire breaks in the cool season. It has also led to desertification in national parks in Africa, where grazing herds of cattle, managed by people for hundreds of years prior to that, were excluded. Noah's Flood, about 4,500 years ago, provides a mechanism for an ice age that followed it in the northern hemisphere peaking after about 500 years and then declining rapidly for about 200 years. Because the secularists deliberately overlook the flood, they do not have a viable mechanism to explain an ice age. Slight variations in the Earth's orbit and axial tilt over long periods of time, the so-called Milankovitch mechanism, are said to create very slight differences in the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth or parts of the Earth. However, these differences cannot create the massive changes in the temperature required to explain any ice age. Thus, secular scientists reason that the climate must be unstable. They then co-opted CO2 as a factor in amplifying the slight changes in sunlight. But that effect is not very large either, so positive feedbacks are invoked to amplify those effects to try to explain multiple ice ages. There is effectively no viable model for getting any ice age, but this belief in climate instability undergirds climate alarmism. Nearly all today's coal was formed from vegetation buried during the flood. The amount of vegetation suggests that the CO2 levels in the atmosphere between creation and the flood must have been very high compared to today's levels. Even secular geologists agree that ancient Paleozoic CO2 levels were much higher, even 15 times more. There is no evidence that Earth was cooked by this situation through a runaway greenhouse effect. The much higher CO2 levels would enhance plant productivity enormously, allowing also for much more animal biomass. There is evidence, such as the amount of coal and other fossils, that Earth was prolifically productive pre-flood. We have a biblical basis for our confidence that the climate is designed to be broadly stable. After the flood, God promised in Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This suggests that earth would quickly recover from the catastrophic climate change that occurred with the flood and the ensuing ice age. That is, Earth's climate was designed neither to be chaotic nor prone to extreme changes. Imposed on an overall stable climate are smaller natural cycles. In such a situation, we might expect times in the past where temperatures were similar to today. Indeed, this is so. In the Roman warm period from AD 1 to 400, temperatures were 2 degrees Celsius above the current temperatures for that region of the Earth. The medieval warm period from AD 950 to 1300, also known as the medieval climate anomaly, was also warmer than now. Neither of these warm periods could have had anything to do with human-generated CO2. The Roman warm period was a period of flourishing of the Roman Empire. The medieval warm period was a very productive time both for crops and the advance of science, logic, architecture, and the arts. 
On the other hand, the Little Ice Age from AD 1300 to 1870 was a significant period of cold. The shorter crop growing seasons caused famines, plagues, and widespread poverty. The Bible in many places records weather events that God ordained as judgment or blessing on people. That is, the weather is under God's control. One well-known example is Joseph's seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Egypt recorded in Genesis 41. Also, under the Mosaic law, Israel's idolatry invited crop failures, see Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Foundationally, the issue of climate change involves a deep-seated worldview conflict. As we said earlier, Christians should be concerned about ecology and we do have a duty to care for the environment. However, the fake anti-Bible deep-time evolutionary history of planet Earth, based on naturalism, the belief that nature is all there is, feeds into a radical environmentalist ideology. This has now embraced climate change. Is climate change just a matter of science? Martin Isles, head of the Australian Christian Lobby, says that we must ask what worldview drives the climate change agenda. Where are these people coming from? Without a doubt, the worldview driving the alarmism is not Christian, it is humanistic and neo-Marxist. It is a Babel mentality. People seem to think that they can be like God, even controlling the weather, as Jesus did when he stilled the storm on Lake Galilee. On the other hand, if humans are contributing to environmental problems, we should address these issues proactively, as long as the cure isn't worse than the disease. Indeed, many environmental problems of yesteryear have already been remedied in many countries. For example, the handling of nuclear waste, cleaning up car exhausts, wanton dumping of toxic materials, etc. However, problems still remain. For example, microplastics and overfishing of critical stocks. Statements by leaders of the climate change movement show that it has become a vehicle for globalization and wealth redistribution. For example, here's the mainstream view from German economist Ottmar Edenhofer, also an official from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, commonly called IPCC. One must say clearly that we redistribute de facto the world's wealth by climate policy. Obviously, the owners of coal and oil will not be enthusiastic about this. One has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore, with problems such as deforestation or the ozone hole. For a non-mainstream view, we have Extinction Rebellion co-founder Stuart Vasden. I'm here to say that Extinction Rebellion isn't about the climate. You see, the climate's breakdown is a symptom of a toxic system that has infected the ways we relate to each other as humans and to all life. He goes on to use neo-Marxist rhetoric criticizing heteronormativity, patriarchy, white supremacy, and class hierarchy. He says Extinction Rebellion is about fixing the system, that is, destroying Western society. Furthermore, there is an inconsistency between the walk and the talk about a global concern. If the concern was truly about saving the planet from global warming due to human-generated CO2, surely the greatest sources of the CO2 should be the main target for the action. Then why, when China is the world's largest CO2 producer, is no one protesting outside Chinese embassies? Australia, for example, contributes just 1.2% of the world's emissions, and yet is a target for activism. Yet if its emissions disappeared completely, with Australia reduced to a pre-industrial age, it would not make a detectable difference in world CO2 levels. 
As of 2018, for example, China had nearly a thousand gigawatts of coal-fired electricity generation compared to 261 gigawatts for the USA and just 36 gigawatts for Australia. Moreover, neither China nor India have any target to reduce their total CO2 emissions under the Paris Accord. Hundreds of new coal-fired power stations are planned for China, India, and other places. Where are the protests about China and India destroying the planet? The moral imperative should surely be to go after the biggest contributors first. Someone might protest that Australia's per capita emissions are greater than for China and India, and therefore the moral imperative is for Australia, or insert another small Western country, to take drastic action. But other than for virtue signaling, this is irrelevant to the health of the planet, given that anthropogenic global warming is going to destroy the planet. The planet cares not about per capita emissions, the only thing that matters is the total emissions. And while the USA was lambasted for pulling out of the Paris Accord, it has actually cut CO2 emissions thanks to it turning to natural gas. Natural gas is a low CO2 emitting fuel and enables the very efficient combined power cycle electric generation. Conversely, most countries staying in the Paris Accord have failed to meet their targets. Furthermore, if climate change activists were really concerned about saving the planet from the effects of human-produced carbon dioxide, why are they not generally supporting nuclear power? Ever since its first report in 1990, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has proposed that nuclear power has a major role to play in replacing fossil fuel power generation, but the activists don't seem too keen. Nuclear energy now provides about 10% of the world's electricity from about 440 reactors, and because of its high energy density, it's also very green. If this energy were produced by fossil fuels, it would emit 2 billion tons of CO2 per year. Nuclear power gives France the cleanest air of any industrialized country and the cheapest electricity in Europe. It exports some to its neighbors. While many people have genuine environmental concerns, the radical activist leaders apparently want to undermine the economies of the West, not save the planet. However, to further their true agenda, they need to recruit lots of people who will support radical changes to save the planet. In so doing, many innocent people, particularly naive young people, including Christians, are getting caught up in what is ultimately a very destructive agenda. Jesus said, By their fruit you shall know them. He was speaking of spiritual moral fruit, righteousness versus unrighteousness, but the principle applies more generally, and there is certainly an unrighteousness about a movement that is intent on destroying the material means for human flourishing. Failed predictions are a major fruit of climate activism, justifying skepticism. Anyone who remembers the 1970s will recall that we were all going to freeze in another ice age. Of course, we could do nothing about that. So some of the same experts who were running with that switched to global warming. And then, when the temperature data did not match the models that gave the dire predictions, it morphed into climate change. Also popular were acid rain and the ozone hole. In 1989, the UN said, entire nations will be wiped out by the year 2000 if sea level rises are not stopped. Did this happen? No. Tuvulu, a Pacific Ocean nation of ring-shaped coral reef islands, is a favorite poster child for this claim. However, Tuvulu has increased 3% in land area over the last 40 years. A survey published in 2018 of 30 Pacific and Indian Ocean islands, including 709 islands, revealed that no atoll had lost land area in recent decades. 
In 2007, Dr. Tim Flannery, an evolutionary mammalogist who headed up the Australian government's climate change unit, predicted that even the rain that would fall would not be enough to fill the reservoirs. Australia has had major floods since then. Flannery also said in 2008, just imagine yourself in a world five years from now, in 2013, when there is no more ice over the Arctic. Similarly, in 2008, Al Gore said that the polar ice would be gone by the summer of 2014. They were echoing the common view of mainstream climate scientists. For example, James Hansen, Peter Wadhams, and others, widely reported in media outlets. The Arctic sea ice area measured each September declined from about 7.5 million kilometers in 1980 to about 4 to 5.5 million kilometers from 2010 to 2020, which is still a lot of ice. So the predictions of no ice were seriously out of touch with reality. Please note that fluctuations in the amount of Arctic ice are expected. Besides short-term variation, there could be long-term trends as well. But this cannot be divorced from a discussion of the ice age caused by the Genesis flood. Polar bear numbers, it was predicted, would decline and were even threatened with extinction due to a shrinking area of Arctic sea ice. Such dire predictions were used by Al Gore, Michael Mann, and others to play on the emotions of the public to support radical action on climate change. Mann even published a children's book in 2018 using polar bears to capture the imaginations of children. Since 2005, the global polar bear population has increased. Even so, we wonder why a typical evolutionist would be at all concerned. If polar bears go extinct, so what? Something else will evolve to fill their place, or not. But it does not matter either way if life on Earth is nothing more than a cosmic accident. The fact that they are trying to make emotional moral arguments, when they have no basis for doing so, only shows that this is more about manipulation of public opinion than about science. There are many other failed predictions. Mass extinctions, increasing droughts, decreased food production, increasing frequency and intensity of cyclones, hurricanes and typhoons, increasing number and intensity of tornadoes, decreasing snowfall, etc. Few, if any, are based on any objective science. It seems like every major weather-related event gets co-opted by climate change activists. They called the 2019 bushfires in Australia unprecedented and attributed them to climate change. They were most definitely not unprecedented in terms of either lives lost or area burnt. For example, in the 1938 through 39 fire season, over 80 lives were lost in bushfires in Victoria and New South Wales, compared to 34 in the recent fires. And the 5 million hectares burnt compares with 117 million hectares in the fires of 1974 to 75. The most relevant failed predictions of the climate alarmists are those regarding rising global temperature from the climate models, which we'll get to right after a short break. People want to understand where we all came from, so the scientific community, religions, and academia have each rose to the challenge to give answer to why we're all here. One way or another, we are all limited by the number of facts and opinions we can gather and assess. Evolutionists and creationists should both be aware of the facts, though, no matter what they believe, before they draw conclusions or debate origins and reality itself. If you want answers to evolution's most perplexing claims, you'll want to get a copy of The Creation Answers Book. I'm pleased to tell you that it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook form. The Creation Answers Book provides biblical answers to over 60 important questions that everyone should be informed on, like, what about carbon-14 dating? How did all the animals fit on the ark? 
Where are all the human fossils? And how did bad things come about? Not only does the book answer your questions, but it will equip you to effectively respond to those that resist the gospel due to the theory of evolution. The Creation Answers book is a must-have for everyone's library, so get an audiobook, ebook, or softcover copy at creation.com store. How scientific is climate science? Before discussing some specifics regarding the science of climate change, let us consider how science works and how this impacts the science of climate change. The heart of the scientific method is that hypotheses can be tested with experiments. Repeated measurements of the response to a treatment allow the calculation of a confidence in the conclusion about the effect of that treatment being true, and not just due to some random variation. A probability of 95% is normally the lowest accepted in science. That is, one experiment in 20 will give a false result. In climate science, the observed phenomenon is that the global surface temperature has been increasing, as has the CO2 in the atmosphere. The hypothesis is that the temperature increase is caused by the CO2 that is being released into the atmosphere by human activity. However, it is not possible to design a repeatable experiment to test this hypothesis because of the size, complexity, and uniqueness of the system. There is only one planet Earth, and it is rather complicated. Consequently, we are left with conjectures and predictions. Applying statistical models to the past temperature data can generate a prediction for the future, but the confidence limits of 95% are so wide that the predictions are useless. And this approach cannot say that CO2 is causing the change. Thus, the climate models that predict a temperature response to CO2 have to be deterministic. That is, they assume that the inputs will determine the temperature. Hence, the assertion based on these models that CO2 causes global warming is circular reasoning. Worse, even as recently as a decade ago, climate models could not deal with factors like cloud cover. Computers are getting faster, and climate models are getting more sophisticated, but significant areas of the climate are still beyond our modeling reach. Science cannot prove theories to be true, only that they are false. Observing a result that is predicted by a hypothesis does not prove that the hypothesis is true. This is the fallacy of affirming the consequent. These same results might also be consistent with some other hypothesis. On the other hand, we can show a hypothesis to be false by finding evidence that contradicts it. Biblical creationists will be familiar with this truth since the evidence said to prove evolution, for example, mutations, natural selection, speciation, is perfectly consistent with creation. Thus, while the existence of observations that are consistent with theoretical predictions is necessary for the survival of any theory, data that are inconsistent with these predictions are more important. Such data tell us that the hypothesis is incorrect. If there are no contrary data, despite myriad repeated experiments to test the hypothesis, as is the case with, say, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, the theory is most probably valid. If the climate models used to predict the future temperature based on carbon dioxide levels fail to predict those temperatures, the models must be rejected or modified. Correlation does not mean causation. That the temperature has been increasing along with the level of CO2 does not mean that one caused the other. For example, between June and December of 2008, both the temperature in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and the Toronto Stock Exchange Index decreased dramatically. However, one did not cause the other. Thus, the observation that the atmospheric temperature and CO2 concentration are both increasing does not mean that one is causing the other. 
Either one may, indeed, be causing the other, or both could be being caused by something else, or they could be completely unrelated. Science is often captured by a ruling paradigm. A paradigm is a framework used by default for the interpretation of data. It is just assumed to be true. Sometimes this is done explicitly when scientists do not have a better idea, and so they just run with the best idea they have, anticipating that they could be wrong. At other times, the ruling paradigm is subliminal or is being hidden by certain players in the game. In the latter cases, data that are inconsistent with the paradigm are treated as errors by the researcher or dismissed because the researcher is judged not to have appropriate credentials, unacceptable political leanings, any sort of religious beliefs, or funding sources deemed inappropriate. Or if none of these applies, the errors are accommodated within the ruling paradigm by introducing ancillary hypotheses. The Ptolemaic geostationary model of the solar system is a well-known false paradigm that ruled the interpretation of astronomical observations for about 1500 years. The Big Bang and biological evolution are two modern ruling paradigms in cosmology and biology, paleontology, respectively. Thus, it should not surprise us that climate science has been captured by the ruling paradigm that anthropogenic CO2 will cause catastrophic climate change. Nothing else is considered. Peer review does not ensure truth. Peer review, especially when coupled with publication in prestigious scientific journals, has come to be taken as the gold standard of science. And the contents of scientific papers are often treated as beyond question. There are numerous examples of failure in the peer review process. A prominent incident prompted one academic to write a scathing critique of peer review that was published in The Guardian. At its worst, peer review is merely window dressing that gives the unwarranted appearance of authority a cursory process which confers no real value, enforces orthodoxy, and overlooks both obvious analytical problems and outright fraud entirely. The ClimateGate emails, which we'll get to later, showed that this problem afflicts climate science. Let us now test some of the major predictions in climate science. Let us recognize two facts. Atmospheric CO2 has increased since 1860 from about 285 parts per million, which is 0.029%, to 410 parts per million, that's a whopping 0.041%, in 2020. This amounts to about a 50% rise over 160 years. The current rate of increase is about 2 parts per million per year. The planet has warmed by about 0.8 degrees Celsius since 1880, and half of this warming occurred before there was any significant change in the CO2. That is, this part of the warming could not be due to human activity. The debate is mainly over the role of humans in global warming. Is human-generated CO2 contributing to the warming? If it is, how much of the warming is due to human activity, and will the warming be enough to be of concern? Further, are the proposed means to counteract this going to do more harm than good? Note that the human contribution to CO2 emissions through the burning of fossil fuels and cement production is not the only contributor to atmospheric carbon. Other sources include changes in land use, for example, deforestation, volcanoes, the weathering of rocks, the release of carbon dioxide from the oceans, the breakdown of organic remains like dead wood in forests, etc. Greenhouse gases are especially important for the livability of planet Earth. Without them, the average temperature would be about 33 degrees Celsius lower. In other words, we would be well and truly frozen. The average global temperature is 14.5 to 15 degrees Celsius. 
Nearly all of this greenhouse gas effect is due to water vapor, and only about 3.3 degrees Celsius is due to CO2. The atmosphere is mostly nitrogen and oxygen, which have no greenhouse effect. Many discussions of climate change have excluded the effects of water vapor, which should respond dynamically to changes in temperature. Yet, since water has a much greater greenhouse effect, the exclusion of water from the debate is inexcusable. Other significant greenhouse gases include methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons, which were popular refrigerants in the past that have been removed from the equation. Notwithstanding the problematic nature of the surface temperature record which we'll get more into later, is it consistent with human-generated CO2 being the cause of a rise in temperature? The amount of anthropogenic CO2 has risen fairly consistently since 1880, but the global temperature has not. There have been periods of warming and cooling. In this article on creation.com, you can see a chart for global temperature and human-generated carbon dioxide from 1850 to 2010. Note that the temperature record shown in the figure is the official one, which has been subject to fraudulent manipulation to decrease earlier temperatures and increase more recent ones. The figure shows global temperatures starting in 1850 around negative 0.1 degrees Celsius below the long-term average and ending 0.6 degrees above the long-term average in 2010. Meanwhile, human emissions increased from close to 0 to 8,000 metric tons of CO2 per year in 2010. A prominent member of the climate establishment, Dr. Phil Jones, admitted that the rates of global warming from 1860 through 1880, 1910 through 1940, and 1975 through 1998 are similar and not statistically significantly different from each other. However, the amounts of human-generated CO2 at those times are very different. Indeed, the rate of rise in temperature 1860 through 1880 is similar to the recent rise and yet the amount of human-generated CO2 is about 60 times greater for the latter period. And there have also been significant periods of cooling from 1880 through 1910 and 1940 through 1950, all while CO2 emissions were rising. These data show that the global temperature is not rising consistently with the increased production of human-generated CO2. Note that the chart shows human-generated CO2, not total atmospheric CO2, which has risen less than 50% since pre-industrial times. These observations cast doubt on the claim that human-generated CO2 is the prime cause of periods of global warming since 1880. The claim that 97% of scientists agree that human-generated CO2 will cause catastrophic warming to planet Earth is fake news. Even if it were accurate, it would not prove that it is correct. It is the fallacious argument from consensus. As Michael Crichton said, Consensus is the business of politics. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, it isn't consensus. Period. This argument has strong parallels to a major argument for evolution, that because most scientists accept it, then it must be true. Which of course evolution is not, as a growing wealth of evidence from modern science shows. In the United States, the Global Warming Petition Project has garnered the signatures of some 31,500 scientists resident in the USA alone, including over 9,000 with PhDs, who dispute the claim that CO2 will cause serious problems. This alone casts serious doubt on the 97% figure. 
The justification for 97% has been a 2013 paper that, based on the abstracts of nearly 12,000 climate science papers published from 1991 to 2011, concluded that 97% of those who expressed an opinion endorsed the consensus view that humans are causing global warming. Based on this, former President Obama's Twitter account declared, 97% of scientists agree, climate change is real, man-made, and dangerous. Note how the paper's claim morphed from humans are causing some global warming into all climate change is man-made and dangerous. This is deceitful. Moreover, the study was conducted by members of another activist group, Skeptical Science, which exists to promote public acceptance of anthropogenic global warming. When the raw data are examined, according to the author's own ratings, only 64 of the nearly 12,000 papers actually claim that most of the warming is caused by human activity. In a follow-up analysis of the same papers, other researchers found that only 41 of those 64 papers endorsed the position that most of global warming was man-made. Taking into consideration that two-thirds of the papers expressed no view, that amounts to less than 1% of the papers that expressed a view. How did the authors get their 97%? They amalgamated all views that human-generated greenhouse gases are causing some warming. However, even most skeptics of the alarmism, including many who signed the global warming petition, agree that human-generated CO2 causes some warming. This is a trivial finding. The survey did not address the question of climate change being dangerous or a crisis or anything like that. Such claims are made by politicians and actors come activists. So, the 97% figure is a dishonest twisting of statistics, and the activists' own raw data show that very few scientists agree even that most of the warming is due to human activity, let alone that it is dangerous. In 2016 alone, over 500 papers were published in peer-reviewed science journals that seriously questioned the supposed consensus on climate change. Some high-profile scientists who dispute the alarmism include Leonard Bengtsson, who was director of the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology in Hamburg, Germany, John Christie, distinguished professor of atmospheric science and director of the Earth System Science Center at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, Roy Spencer, University of Alabama in Huntsville, and NASA. He and Dr. John Christie received NASA's Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal for their global temperature monitoring work with satellites. Judith Curry, who due to the craziness of the politicization of climate science, in 2017 took early retirement from her position as professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech, USA, a position she had held for 15 years. Richard Lindzen, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences at MIT, contributed to the IPCC's 1995 and 2001 reports, but became skeptical of the alarmist climate model projections. Nir Shaviv, Professor and Chair of the Raqqa Institute of Physics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. There are many others. In September 2019, a global network of 500 prominent climate scientists and professionals stated that there is no climate emergency. They invited the UN to organize with them a constructive high-level meeting between world-class scientists on both sides of the climate debate early in 2020. As of the 27th of April 2022, over 1,000 have now signed the declaration. When we consider the persecution that dissenters have experienced, we see another parallel to the creation-evolution debate. In both cases, dissenters from both the Darwinian and climate alarmism paradigms have been demoted and even fired. 
The consensus argument is little more than a bullying campaign intended to stifle dissent and debate, as it is with the creation-evolution debate. The UN's IPCC stated in 2001 that the climate system is a coupled non-linear chaotic system, and therefore the long-term prediction of future climate states is not possible. Nevertheless, that is exactly what they did. But because it is so complex, over 100 different models have been used. If it were clear-cut or settled, there would be one model. A major test of any scientific mathematical model is the accuracy of predictions. It is now clear that the climate models used by the UN's IPCC to garner world action to cut CO2 emissions in wealthy countries, that is, transfer wealth, have failed badly. Nearly all the models seriously overpredict global surface temperature response to rising CO2. The fact that recent temperature measurements have diverged from nearly all climate models on the low side is a serious blow to all the modeling efforts. The models are simply wrong. Thus, the dire predictions about a coming global temperature crisis are also wrong. We need to know how much Earth will warm in response to an increase in CO2. The equilibrium climate sensitivity is the amount of warming expected from a doubling of the CO2 level. If this is unacceptably high, then an appropriate response might be to take steps to reduce human-generated CO2 emissions. If the equilibrium climate sensitivity is acceptably small, then there is little point in acting to limit emissions. The direct greenhouse effect of CO2 is generally agreed upon, at about 1.1 degrees Celsius increase for a doubling of the atmospheric CO2 concentration. Some even argue for a figure of 0.5 degrees Celsius, which we'll get to later. Importantly, this is not a linear relationship. There is a diminishing effect of adding more CO2 because it absorbs only certain infrared frequencies and most of those are already absorbed. In other words, climate sensitivity decreases as the CO2 concentration increases. Van Weingarten and Happer show this based on the infrared heat spectral absorption curve for CO2. This is not conjecture, but solid experimental physics, and shows that 400 parts per million CO2 contributes 30 watts per meter squared reduction in thermal radiation into space from Earth. Increasing the CO2 to 800 parts per million contributes only a further 3 watts per meter squared. In other words, 90% of the greenhouse effect of CO2 up to 800 parts per million is already done at 400 parts per millions, approximately the current atmospheric concentration. The direct effect of such a doubling would be only a 0.6 degrees Celsius rise in Earth's temperature. The IPCC in their 2001 report gave some acknowledgement to this decreasing effect, but their forcing from doubling from 400 to 800 was around 4.5 to 5 watts per meter squared, depending on the various formulas used, which is up to 50% more than the 3 watts per meter squared figure based on the spectral absorption curves. But even with this, the direct effect on Earth's temperature would be only about 0.9 degrees Celsius. Furthermore, even assuming that all of the two parts per million per year increase in CO2 is due to human activity, it would take nearly 200 years to double the atmospheric CO2 level to 800 parts per million. Why the panic? It comes partly from the IPCC's climate models that add positive feedback or amplification to the about one degree of warming expected from CO2 alone, without considering any secondary or knock-on effects. Thus, the IPCC AR5 in 2013 placed the equilibrium climate sensitivity at between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees Celsius. 
The report acknowledged, no best estimate for equilibrium climate sensitivity can now be given because of a lack of agreement on values across assessed lines of evidence and studies. The IPCC AR6 in 2021 now gives a best estimate of 3 degrees Celsius for climate sensitivity. Interestingly, the report reduces the range of likely temperatures for a doubling of the CO2. The extreme high has been reduced to 4 and the lower bound increased to 2.5. The greatest disagreements among climate scientists are over how much positive feedback they expect. That is, will the direct warming effect of increased CO2 be amplified by increased water vapor in the atmosphere due to the warming of the oceans? This extra water vapor would trap more of the incoming radiation and thus amplify the warming from CO2. The models that the IPCC relies upon all incorporate substantial positive feedbacks. Dr. David Evans formally advised the Australian Federal Government's Greenhouse Office, now the Department of Climate Change, from 1991 to 2005, and part-time from 2008 to 2010. He has six degrees related to modeling and applied mathematics, including a PhD from Stanford University. He resigned because he no longer believed that human-generated CO2 would cause a damaging temperature increase. He changed from being a warmist to a skeptic because of the scientific evidence he has put together a strong scientific case. He tests the predictions of the models. Any failures in such predictions show that the models are faulty and should be rejected. Evans does not argue from deep time history, but from current measurements that test the predictions of the models. Evans used four unbiased sources of data. One, NASA satellite global air temperatures. Two, over 3,000 Argo buoys that constantly patrol the oceans of the world measuring the temperature profile of the oceans. 3. Weather balloons, which have measured the temperature profile of the atmosphere since the 1960s. And 4. Outgoing radiation from the planet as measured by satellites. Dr. James Hansen, the father of global warming, presented temperature predictions to the U.S. Congress in 1988. His model predicted considerably higher air temperatures than revealed by NASA's subsequent satellite data, which show little change over the next 18 years, even though CO2 increased in that period. Furthermore, even where a radical reduction in CO2 emissions was assumed, with no increase in atmospheric CO2 after the year 2000, the model predictions exceeded the actual temperatures that occurred with continued CO2 production. That is, the model predicted quite excessive temperatures. Failure number one. The UN's IPCC models, published in 1990. Again, compared to NASA's satellite-measured air temperatures, even the lowest temperatures predicted exceeded reality. Failure number two. Argo ocean temperatures from 2003. There is almost no change in the global ocean heat content from this unbiased data set. Why do we seldom hear of these data? The IPCC models greatly overpredict the heat content, temperature profile, of the oceans compared to these data. Failure number three. The positive feedback in the IPCC models that amplifies the CO2 effect is claimed to be largely due to water vapor. If this were the case, there should be an atmospheric hotspot in the middle altitudes, the mid-troposphere, at the tropics. Both the global balloon data and the satellite data show no such hotspot in the atmosphere, which means that positive feedback is not operating, contrary to the model's predictions. Failure number four. The IPCC models include positive feedback from increased water vapor due to the warming of the oceans. 
This extra water vapor is supposed to trap more of the incoming radiation and thus amplify the warming. Thus, as the sea surface temperature increases, there should be more water vapor and then less outgoing radiation from the Earth. However, satellite measurements show increased outgoing radiation, the opposite of IPCC models' predictions. As the climate scientists Linzen and Choi said, the results imply that the models are exaggerating climate sensitivity. Failure number five. So here's a summary of how the climate models failed every test from Evans, the skeptics case. For the test of temperatures from 1988, there was an overestimated rise, even if drastically cut in anthropogenic CO2. Then the second test in 1990, there was still an overestimated trend rise. For the test of ocean temperatures in 2003, there was a greatly overestimated trend rise. For the atmospheric hotspot test, the water vapor feedback was not amplifying. And of the outgoing radiation test, the climate models were opposite to reality. Water vapor feedback was not amplifying. The last two points mean that the positive feedbacks, the amplifications, which are so critical to all the IPCC's models, do not operate. That is, the maximum climate sensitivity is 1.1 degrees Celsius. This, remember, is the amount of warming expected from a doubling of the level of CO2. However, the last point provides strong evidence of negative feedback, which would reduce the maximum climate sensitivity to less than 1.1 degrees Celsius. This negative feedback is probably due to enhanced cloud cover with an increase in temperature. We all experience this. In cloudy weather, the temperature during the daytime is lower due to the cloud reflecting the sun's radiation back into space. Clouds also maintain warmer nighttime temperatures. This shows that in the daytime, the reflective effect of the cloud greatly exceeds the greenhouse effect. The negative feedback means that the climate sensitivity, the effect of doubling atmospheric CO2 on global temperature, falls to about 0.5 degrees Celsius. It would be hard to argue that this would be anything but beneficial for the planet. Nevertheless, the feedbacks remain uncertain. An independent comprehensive study from the Helmut Schmidt University, Germany, arrived at a maximum climate sensitivity of 0.7 degrees Celsius and also concluded that negative feedbacks more than offset positive feedbacks, and also that the sun contributed 60% of the recent warming. Using a somewhat different approach, other researchers found the median most likely value of the maximum climate sensitivity to be 1.5 degrees Celsius at the bottom of the range published in the fifth report of the IPCC, although outside the bottom bound of the sixth report of the IPCC in 2022 of 2.5 degrees Celsius. A study published in 2021 used gaseous absorption spectra throughout the atmosphere to calculate from first principles, not an atmospheric circulation modeling approach, the maximum climate sensitivity. The researchers determined a value of 0.5 degrees Celsius, including the positive feedback from water vapor. They also showed that the contributions from doubling methane and nitrous oxide were insignificant, each less than 0.1 degrees Celsius. Our opinion is that these sorts of values for the maximum climate sensitivity are nothing to panic about. And the IPCC would seem to tacitly agree because their target, based on the faulty models, is to limit the warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The bottom line is that we don't have to take any drastic action to limit the warming due to human-generated CO2 to less than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Indeed, life on Earth flourished in the past when things were warmer. For example, during the medieval warm period, when the temperature was about 1 degree warmer than now, based on several lines of evidence. On the other hand, 
times of coolness, like the Little Ice Age, caused widespread poverty. It would be helpful if climate science could progress in this area to give us more certainty, and it is a shame that politics is interfering and thus impeding progress. A study published in 2020 attributed a substantial amount of the warming in the Arctic to the rise in ozone-depleting substances in the second half of the 20th century. Such substances, such as chlorofluorocarbons, are powerful greenhouse gases. The authors wrote, Gases that deplete the ozone layer could be responsible for up to half of the effects of climate change observed in the Arctic from 1955 to 2005. Also, a reduction in the area of snow or its annual duration results in less reflection of sunlight back into space, and therefore more Arctic warming due to this, irrespective of overall global climate change. This would be an ongoing effect of the earlier warming due to the chlorofluorocarbons. A major study in 2021 of the temperature of the Arctic Ocean over the last 800 years, using various proxies for temperature from seafloor sediments, found that a jump in warming began around 1900, along with rapid sea ice retreat. This is well before any significant rise in human-generated CO2. The study attributed the warming to the increased penetration of the northward current from the Atlantic, but it is quite a complex situation. Again, this cannot be explained by anthropogenic global warming. The authors acknowledge, currently, the latest coupled model intercomparison project, Phase 6 Historical Climate Experiments, fail to reproduce the post-Little Ice Age Atlantification documented in our reconstructions. The Sun is, rather obviously, a major driver of climate on Earth. Solar cycles affect the climate via stratospheric warming, cosmic rays, and cloud cover, and there are cyclical movements of Earth's position relative to the Sun. The 11-year solar cycle is evident in a cyclical variation in Earth's temperature of the order of 0.2 degrees Celsius, but longer-term cycles are harder to study. The Maunder Minimum was a prolonged period of very low sunspot numbers from 1645 to 1715 during the Little Ice Age, when it was very cold with crop failures. We have recently moved into an exceptionally quiet period of solar activity. For the first time since the 1600s, we have had several recent years with no sunspots. Maybe the normal 11-year cycle will resume, but maybe not. If the primary driver of the climate is the sun, and if we cannot yet predict what it will do on a short time frame, how can we predict temperatures decades and centuries out? In the 1990s, Danish physicist Henrik Svensmark and colleagues began publishing on the effect of cosmic rays on cloud formation, which would affect global warming and cooling. They demonstrated that ionizing radiation causes nucleation sites to form, around which water droplets form, leading to cloud formation. The hypothesis is that when the sun's solar wind is strong and Earth is protected from cosmic rays, there is less cloud formation and the Earth warms. Conversely, when the solar wind is weak, that is when sunspot activity is at a minimum, more cosmic rays enter Earth's atmosphere and more clouds form, cooling the planet. Dr. Brian Tinsley, Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas, Dallas, proposed an alternative model wherein cosmic rays make clouds last longer, thus cooling the Earth. This seems to explain a wider range of observations than Svensmark's model. These important areas of climate science tend to get insufficient attention due to the excessive focus on CO2 as a driver of climate change. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 The satellite data show some global warming since 1980, 
but we need the land-based observations before that to determine if the recent temperatures are unusual. Dr. Evans only used the satellite data that had not been subject to tampering in his evaluation of the climate models. There is good reason for this, as there is strong evidence that institutions such as the CRU of the University of East Anglia, NASA, and NOAA in the USA, the UK Climate Authorities, and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, BOM, have been adjusting historical terrestrial temperature records to support the case for CO2-driven global warming. The now infamous hockey stick graph, produced by Michael Mann of Penn State University and co-authors, was the linchpin of the AGW movement. The IPCC used the graph in the summary for policymakers in their third assessment report from 2001. It was very influential. The graph was exposed as deceptive. It erased the medieval warm period from the temperature record, and worse. Man even sued a critic, lost, and then refused to pay the court-ordered costs. Underlining how corrupt climate science has become, instead of being disgraced, Mann was awarded the 2019 Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. The extent of the mischaracterization of the data has been thoroughly exposed. McIntyre and McKittrick concluded, the data set used to make this construction contained collation errors, unjustified truncation or extrapolation of source data, obsolete data, incorrect principal component calculations, geographical mislocations, and other serious defects. These errors and defects substantially affect the temperature index. After correcting the errors, using the same data set, the reviewers yielded a northern hemisphere temperature index in which the late 20th century is unexceptional compared to the preceding centuries, displaying neither unusually high mean values nor variability. Man's massaging of the data might be the tip of the iceberg globally. Other inappropriate data manipulation has been proven. Dr. Jennifer Marohasey demonstrates this for Australia's Bureau of Meteorology. The BOM has had two goes at adjusting the historical temperature record for Australia, dubbed ACORN-1 and ACORN-2. ACORN adjustments apparently did not produce enough warming, so they increased the recent warming with ACORN-2. They did this by reducing earlier recorded temperatures and increasing recently recorded temperatures. They claimed that this was necessary because of changes in equipment and situations of the weather stations, and that they were following world's best practice, without stating just what that meant. Changes in weather stations include using electronic temperature sensors, which have short lag times compared to a traditional mercury bulb thermometer, use of small plastic temperature screens instead of the formerly standard Stevenson screen, the white, wooden, double-louvered box that is used to shelter the temperature sensors from direct or reflected radiation from the sun so that shade temperature is measured, the situation of the equipment, such as urbanization, causing a heat island effect, Automatic weather stations with electronic sensors and small plastic screens have been increasingly adopted into weather data networks since about 1980. Note that all the changes would inflate recent temperatures, so any adjustments to make them comparable with earlier recordings should be to reduce them, not increase them. Furthermore, there are proven instances of the deletion of high temperatures from the past records, such as Australia's hottest day on record, being 51.7 degrees Celsius at Bourke on the 3rd of January 1909. BOM claimed that it was anomalous because the nearest stations failed to record a similar temperature. However, nearby Brewarena recorded 50.6 degrees Celsius for the same day. Furthermore, the second hottest on record, 51.1 degrees Celsius, recorded at White Cliffs on 12th of January 1939, is also not included in the official digitized records. 
The late 30s was a hot period in the USA. Such claims as the hottest year on record, etc., that are periodically released to the media are based on these adjusted historical datasets. NOAA and NASA in the USA have been doing similarly. Two graphs illustrate some of the data manipulation that has been going on. Look at this article on creation.com to see the graphs in detail. Surface temperature data for the contiguous states in the USA from 1880 through 1998 from Hansen and others from 1999, and a surface temperature record version as of 2020. The spike in the 1930s was adjusted down while the spike in the late 1990s was adjusted up, along with the other temperatures, making it look like recent temperatures were unusually high when they were not at all. NASA and GISS claim that changes in the time at which the daily maximum and minimum temperatures were recorded, from afternoon to morning, and station location justified these adjustments. However, lifelong environmentalist Tony Heller has shown that these changes are not justified. For example, they are applied to stations where there has been no change in circumstances, as is also the case with the bomb in Australia. Heller concluded, there is overwhelming evidence of fraud in NOAA and NASA's handling of climate data, and it is very important they are held to account. Data tampering was also exposed with the UK's Climate Research Unit at East Anglia University. The ClimateGate affair broke shortly before the UN Climate Summit in 2009. The leak of thousands of emails between climate scientists showed that they had deliberately manipulated and hidden data. This is critically important as it impinges upon the integrity of the dataset that is the main long-term global temperature record used by the IPCC and many researchers. Indeed, an independent audit of the dataset found very serious errors. The researcher, Dr. John McLean, summarizes, a common but flawed method of data adjustment creates a false warming trend from the adjustments alone. Ultimately, it is argued that the flawed data casts doubt on the credibility of IPCC reports that rely on the data or earlier versions of the dataset. Due diligence of these matters by governments 20 or more years ago might have avoided poorly justified policies on climate and energy. There is also evidence of fraudulent manipulation of tidal data to give an acceleration in the increase in sea levels compared to what the raw data have shown over the last 100 years, which is nothing dramatic. Fort Denison in Sydney Harbor shows perhaps a 100 millimeters rise in sea level in 100 years, but even here there have been attempts to manipulate the data to try to make it fit the alarmist expectations. There have been massive changes in sea level since Noah's flood. From the presence of old shorelines, marine fossils, and small fossil coral reefs on land today, we can see that sea level was about 68 meters higher at the end of the flood than it is today because there were no Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets yet. During the following ice age, sea level dropped below modern sea level to about negative 50 meters. In the Creation Science Ice Age model, the ice sheets had only 40% of the ice estimated by uniformitarian scientists, who claim that sea level dropped to about negative 120 meters at glacial maximum. Thus, there has been an increase in sea level of about 50 meters since the end of the Ice Age. According to satellite measurements, sea levels are now rising at about 3.3 millimeters a year. This assumes that the data are accurate. Calibration of the satellites has been criticized. It is quite complex, with many factors affecting it. Global sea level cannot be measured locally. Sea level changes are either isostatic, the land moves relative to the sea surface, or eustatic, 
global ocean levels change. Much of northern Europe is rising due to rebound after the Ice Age. The mass of ice literally pressed the continental crust down. Now that the ice has melted, the land is still rising. The southern UK, which was tipped up by the mass of ice on the northern half of the main island, is sinking for the same reason. In many other areas, land has risen or fallen due to volcanic or tectonic activity. Gravity also affects sea levels. Thus, a loss of ice in Antarctica would cause an increase in sea levels in the northern hemisphere, for example. There are also changes in shore and beach features that affect tidal movement, so one cannot look at local sea level and assume any changes are true on a global scale. Unquestionably, if ice sheets on land melt, then sea levels will rise. However, there is little evidence of any acceleration in the sea level rise, which the global warming lobbyists seek to bolster their claim that human activity is causing unusual and dangerous global warming. Geophysicists recently discovered a somewhat surprising and significant contributor to sea level rise, and that is the pumping of groundwater. They found that the global pumping of groundwater from 1993 through 2010 had contributed over 6 mm rise in sea level. Other than thermal expansion, it is only the melting of ice sheets on the land that will cause a rise in ocean levels long term. Thus, if only the Arctic sea ice were to melt completely, producing an ice-free North Pole, there would be no sea level rise due to this. A study of the Greenland and Antarctica ice volumes, using NASA's satellite-based laser-measured altitude data, compared 2003 with 2019. The loss of ice over this period was equal to a sea level rise of 14 millimeters over the 16 years. A separate study of only Antarctica found ice loss from 1979 through 2017 equivalent to a rise in sea level of 14 plus or minus 2 millimeters. If all the Antarctic ice melted, this would cause a rise in sea level of some 57.2 meters. This would of course be disastrous to many people globally. However, how long would this take to happen based on the estimated rates of melting from the most recent period, 2009 through 2017? 82,000 years. Thus, it can be argued that there is no climate emergency. Spending money on an engineering solution to seawater encroachment might make better sense than trying to arrest the ice melting through radical reductions in CO2 emission, when the warming due to human-produced CO2 is likely minimal anyway. Furthermore, the loss of ice volume in Antarctica is very uneven, with the western and peninsula areas contributing much of it. And these areas have warmed significantly compared to other parts. We would not expect such heterogeneity from global warming, Indeed, this has been found to be an area of subglacial volcanic activity as it sits over the West Antarctic Rift System that includes 138 known volcanoes. That is, the melting could occur even if all anthropogenic CO2 production stopped tomorrow. Engineering solutions are possible with a buoyant economy, but not if it is crippled by ill-conceived taxes and spending on green power. Indeed, much of the country of the Netherlands is below sea level, and an engineering solution has been successfully applied. Dutch engineers are now helping Bangladesh and Vietnam in this regard. A paper on the Denman Glacier in Antarctica seemed to underline the need to be prepared with engineering solutions. The authors claimed that if this one glacier melted, global sea level would rise by an impressive 1.5 meters. According to the refereed research paper, the bottom of the glacier is well below sea level, and it is only protected from the sea by a shallow underwater shelf. The edge of the glacier advances and retreats from year to year, so they say that it is possible for the ocean to get underneath the glacier and accelerate melting. This could happen, they say, regardless of global warming. 
Of course, it would take many years to melt, giving time to apply engineering responses. However, a recent re-estimation of the ice volume of all 215,000 glaciers outside of Antarctica and Greenland concluded that if they all melted, sea levels would rise up to 30 centimeters. This does not seem to tally with the Denman Glacier claim. Indeed, we calculated that the contribution of the Denman Glacier would be no more than about 6 millimeters. Note that much of the Denman Glacier is sitting on the bedrock, and the melting of this ice below sea level would take up approximately 10% less of its volume in seawater. That is, offset some of the melting of grounded ice above sea level, due to the fact that ice is approximately 10% greater in volume than the liquid water equivalent. It seems that we have to check every claim made in the name of climate science. Nevertheless, perhaps it was foolish to build most of our major cities at sea level, and then assume the oceans would always stay the same. There is a lot of news coverage of the certain demise of the world's largest reef system, the Great Barrier Reef, GBR, even within 20 years. In a personal perspective, written by Dr. Nancy Knowlton, Sant Chair for Marine Science at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, and published in 2012, 90% of the living coral in the central and southern sections would be gone in just 10 years. Not even close. The reef has been officially surveyed since 1985. There is clear evidence of damage from the crown of thorns starfish and of sporadic damage due to cyclones, typhoons, and hurricanes. However, there is little evidence of a long-term downward trend in the amount of hard coral cover recorded. Indeed, even the clearly biased Smithsonian commentary acknowledged that only 10% of the claimed losses of coral were attributed to bleaching, which is the only damage that could conceivably be linked to global warming. While coral bleaching is certainly related to high water temperatures, it is partly a natural consequence of the way coral reefs develop over time, where the upward growth of the reef encloses pools of water that then overheat. A study of the long-term bleaching of the GBR, from drill cores, showed periods of severe bleaching going back to the 1700s, well before any recent global warming. Researchers at James Cook University, JCU, in Townsville, Australia, published eight papers over several years claiming that acidification from dissolved CO2 creating carbonic acid, nominally H2CO3, harmed coral reef fish species. However, other scientists were unable to replicate this work and found evidence of data fabrication, such as unrealistically low error values. In 2018, Dr. Peter Ridd, who had been head of the Marine Geophysical Laboratory at JCU for 15 years, was sacked from his tenured position for criticizing the quality of climate alarmist research that had been published on the Great Barrier Reef. But he has since been vindicated, although not reinstated. The examples cited thus far reveal either deliberate fraud or incredibly sloppy, blinkered thinking with extreme confirmation bias. It is hard to know which it is at times. Scientists can be affected by an emotional desire to fit into their peer community, to keep the research grants rolling in, and also a common human desire to prefer bad news to good news, to fear the worst, or a prophet of doom mentality. There can also be political motivations. The decline of the Christian ethos in Western society is undoubtedly a major factor in the proliferation of fraud in science generally, which is evident in both evolutionary studies as well as climate science. There is even fraud in experimental science, such as medical drug evaluation, and hard sciences such as physics, but in these areas, fraud is much more likely to be uncovered as experiments are repeated. 
The scope of the data tampering reminds us of George Orwell's 1984. Day by day and almost minute by minute the past was brought up to date. In this way, every prediction made by the party could be shown by documentary evidence to have been correct. Orwell wrote 1984 as a warning, but some seem to treat it as a textbook prescription. This topic is not a global warming matter, but it is a potential negative effect of increased atmospheric carbon dioxide levels that deserves consideration. When the atmospheric CO2 increases, more dissolves in the ocean. This creates a weak acid called carbonic acid that can affect the availability of calcium carbonate to creatures such as corals that use it to build their skeletons. It then takes more energy for them to pull the calcium out of the water. How much of an effect this will have on the sea creatures is an area of current research. There is evidence from in situ experiments with coral communities that they can acclimatize to much higher CO2 levels. This is good news if it holds true with further studies. Indeed, corals have survived much higher CO2 levels in the past, pre-flood, and immediately post-flood. However, it may be that the chemical conditions of the oceans at those times were different to the oceans today. These conditions could now be changing to a less optimal state for these organisms specifically, but we don't know. Other organisms will benefit greatly from increased CO2, such as land plants. Christians need to be good stewards of God's creation, but we need to avoid being hijacked by emotional, unreasoned extremism, especially when it is driven by malevolent political or religious objectives. And we need always to have an eye for the poor so that they are not hurt. Commentators frequently claim that extreme weather events, such as droughts, floods, hurricanes, and tornadoes, are increasing due to climate change. This has become part of the climate emergency or climate crisis trope. However, the historical data don't bear out these claims. A major study published by prominent Italian scientists showed no clear trends in a wide range of extreme weather events. The authors sum up their study. In conclusion, on the basis of observational data, the climate crisis that, according to many sources, we are experiencing today is not evident yet. Unscientific, illogical environmental extremism, for example, Extinction Rebellion, will hurt the poor the most. The poor are not made wealthy by making the rich poor, which is the failed doctrine of communism. Wealth is created by human enterprise. As the saying goes, a rising tide lifts all boats, meaning that as more wealth is created, everyone benefits, including the poor. This is especially so with a Christian approach to business, where all should prosper. Indeed, in the 25 years from 1990 to 2015, the extreme poverty rate dropped an average of a percentage point per year, from nearly 36% to 10%. This progress has been possible because of the growth of wealth due to the extension of free markets helped by fossil fuels that produce cheap and reliable electricity. This is not to say that the use of fossil fuels is without problems. For instance, there is the associated air pollution, especially small particulates and sulfur dioxide, which cause health problems. However, there are technological solutions to these problems that only become feasible as wealth increases. And we always have to ask what the alternative is. In countries too poor for fossil fuels, people burn dung and wood, and the air pollution can be terrible. Even in the West before the oil boom, whale oil was common for lamps. So the fossil fuel industry helped save the whales. The UN recognizes the role of fossil fuels in economic prosperity. So the IPCC advocates that the countries that are not poor be made poorer, 
while countries such as China, India, and those in Africa be free to continue using coal for the foreseeable future. However, if the wealth of the richest countries is reduced by radical climate change activism, then they will not be in a good position to purchase products from the developing economies and so help them prosper. Filling kids' heads with fear and gloom about their future is tantamount to child abuse, and radical climate alarmists have a very real case to answer here. Let kids be kids. Also, getting them to focus on strikes or playing truant, thus distracting them from learning to excel in science and technology, is not going to help with efforts to develop technology to improve the lives of all in the future while caring for the environment. They are also being drawn into a false nature-worshipping monist religion that provides no eternal hope, unlike biblical Christianity. CO2 is plant food, and planet Earth's plants would benefit from more of it, not less. Indeed, the increase in CO2 is now responsible for 30% of the world's food and fiber over the last century, as documented in a paper in Nature in 2017. This is food for people and animals, and with more CO2 in the air, plants have to spend less time with their leaf pores open. Thus, they lose less water during the day and can survive on less water. Deserts are greening, largely because of the extra CO2. With the pre-flood Earth having up to 15 times the CO2 that we have now, plant productivity would have been amazing. That is where fossil fuels came from, as the vegetation of the pre-flood world was buried during the flood and then converted into coal and oil. The drawdown in atmospheric CO2, with the burial of much carbon in the ground and the revegetation of the Earth after the flood, has resulted in the CO2 drought that we are now in. This has been hampering plant productivity and the carrying capacity of planet Earth. Historically, the countries that have best cared for the environment are those that are wealthy. And their wealth is due to free markets and coal and fossil fuels combined with a Christian ethos, which gives a caring soul to the free market. The worst polluters have been the ones under totalitarian regimes with central control of the economy. They don't equalize wealth, they equalize poverty, except for the ruling class. So people end up living hand to mouth, and survival is their priority, not looking after the environment. Extreme action on climate change that kills the economies of the wealthy countries will mean that they will be less able to afford to care for the environment. The unintended harmful environmental consequences of focusing on climate change need to be considered. With so much focus on climate change, other environmental issues can be neglected. A particular madness emanating from the focus on fossil fuel-derived CO2 as a driver of global warming is the conversion of coal-fired power stations in the UK and Europe to run on wood. Under the Paris Accord, wood is renewable energy, but coal is not. Hence, such crazy rules. Another example of unintended consequences is the recent destruction of Southeast Asian rainforests to make way for palm oil plantations to produce biofuels. Existing crop areas have also been moved from food production to ethanol production. There is a lot of money to be made. For example, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore lives in a mansion that uses 21 times the energy of the average U.S. home. He says that's okay because he buys carbon credits to offset his carbon footprint. Where does he buy his carbon credits? From the companies that he founded to trade in carbon credits, which are now worth many millions, having increased in value as he ramped up the hype. The Obamas bought a $13 million mansion, again with a huge carbon footprint, which casts doubt on the genuineness of concerns stated about climate change. Many climate alarmist celebrities fly everywhere in private jets, although one flight uses more fuel than an SUV does in a year of driving. 
we might take them all more seriously if they lived by the constraints they demand of the rest of us. There are so many researchers who are on the grant money gravy train, and they are not going to speak out against the misinformation because otherwise their funding will dry up. Even electricity generation companies saw a profit opportunity with the shutting down of coal-fired power stations because this became a market disruptor. When that happens, it creates an opportunity for profiteering because no one is quite sure what the price of electricity should be anymore. Much of the misinformation comes from politicians who are using environmentalism as a vehicle to push for sweeping social and political change. They are using fear to generate public support to get their ideas implemented. As a prominent civil servant in the Tony Blair era of UK politics said concerning scaremongering over climate change, in order to manage risk, you must scare people. The approach of the more radical parties to saving the earth is to depopulate it. They push for policies that kill people, abortion up to term with no limitations, infanticide, euthanasia, free and easy drugs, transgenderism, and rainbow politics. All of these will create misery, kill people, and decrease the breeding of people. They also work for the destruction of the free markets that have been responsible for a massive movement of people out of poverty in the last 50 years. The leaders of these parties know that, if they can destroy free markets through confiscatory taxes and masses of green tape, they will destroy the means for people to make a living and create widespread poverty. At this point, they hope the population will vote for neo-Marxist policies and decrease. But the environment will suffer. But presumably that's okay, because radical environmentalism is just a means to a political end. It is no surprise that these organizations are also strongly anti-Christian, because Christians stand for the sanctity of human life. Climate fear is thus being used to drive radical political change. Michael Schellenberger has been a prominent climate change activist. He has been a longtime advisor to the IPCC and helped formulate President Obama's energy policy. He now regrets his role in the fear campaign. In his book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, he apologizes for his role in scaring people, especially children, with the idea that climate change represented a global crisis and that the world would end soon unless it was addressed. He exposes many of the false claims and the unintended consequences for the environment. He still believes climate change is happening. It is just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. On X, formerly Twitter, Schellenberger commented, Negativity has triumphed over positivity. In place of love, forgiveness, kindness, and the kingdom of heaven, today's apocalyptic environmentalism offers fear, anger, and the narrow prospects of avoiding extinction. He joins a growing list of former advocates for radical action on global warming. In summary, the politicization of climate science has led to corruption of the science. Over the last 100 years or so, the CO2 level has been increasing. However, the temperatures over that time have not been consistent with the hypothesis that human-generated CO2 is the prime cause of temperature increases. The science is not settled, or there would be one model, not over a hundred, that attempts to predict the global temperature. Furthermore, the official climate models that have predicted up to 4.5 degrees Celsius of global warming with a doubling of the CO2 have failed all five tests applied to them. They should be rejected. Because positive feedback does not operate, the warming from a doubling of the CO2 is likely to be less than one degree Celsius, which would be beneficial to life on Earth. 
Indeed, this is less than the 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming that the draconian policies formulated to limit CO2 production were set to achieve, based on the failed models. The impact of global warming on various natural disasters has been hyped and is not supported by the evidence. There is no climate emergency. The economic impact of radical policies to limit CO2 will most seriously hurt the poorest people. Because humans are intelligent and industrious, we can apply our God-given abilities to solve many real environmental issues, especially if we are guided by a Christian worldview. The idea of dangerous climate change due to burning fossil fuels is unfounded in sound science and divorced from biblical history. As part of good stewardship, Christians should be at the forefront of a decision-making process that balances the needs of all the stakeholders, both in terms of economic development and in minimizing negative impacts on the environment. A Bible-based approach to government, the environment, and justice will result in human flourishing as it has in every country that has been strongly influenced by the Bible's teaching. Clearly, there can hardly be a Christian approach without Christ. Christians need to be proactive in working to see others come to faith in Christ. In doing that, we will also be once again laying the foundations for human flourishing, but also the flourishing of the planet because man is needed to look after it. That's the way God designed it to be. Indeed, Hosea 2.18-23 connects the health of the land to the spiritual health of the people. There is a sickness in many once Christian countries, and it began with the undermining of the Bible as the Word of God from the beginning. When we see the Lord Jesus Christ once again honored as Creator and Savior of the world, we will see health return to our nations. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The Creation.com article podcast is brought to you by the studios of Creation Ministries International, USA. You'll find lots of interesting related content in the links and show notes. This episode's article was written by Don Batten. Be sure to listen to our other show, Creation.com Talk. Visit our events page to find a creationist giving a presentation in your local area. If you'd like to help us, become a monthly supporter at creation.com donate. If you want the latest noteworthy research and news, subscribe to Creation Magazine. From everyone at creation.com, thanks for listening.